Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and this is going to be part two of our two-part discussion about Leonard Schlein's 1998 book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, which argues that literacy and writing, especially alphabetic writing, led to uh, a demotion of the status of women and goddesses and a promotion uh, or a rise in patriarchal religions and cultures. So if you haven't listened to that first episode, you should go back, check that one out so this one makes sense. But for a basic refresher, last time we discussed goddesses, we talked about Inanna, we talked about Thetis, and we outlined the basics of Leonard Schlein's hypothesis. His main claim is that human evolution led to a gendered division in brain hemisphere favoritism, that men and women biologically with their brains can do pretty much the same things if they want to, but that the division of labor in hunter-gatherer culture tended to favor a brain-lateralized division of labor where men were usually more left-brain oriented because men had to be the hunters and that that hunting required left-brain emphases on things like sequential, detail-based thinking uh, and emotional coldness and cruelty. And then on the other hand, you had women more often being selected for labor that favor, favored right brain type stuff like uh, emotional intuitions, empathy, nurturing, education, speech as opposed to written language and images. And so Schlein thinks what? That the introduction of writing kind of messed things up. It shifted human culture to favor the left brain perceptual modes, which traditionally had been associated with men, males of the species, and that that gave rise to patriarchy and patriarchal culture. Yeah, it's such a fabulous hypothesis. I'd really, I, I haven't been able to get it out of my mind since we first started researching it. Yeah, it's one of those that, as we said last time, even if we don't necessarily think his argument is convincing or if, you know, he he hasn't necessarily made his case that this is really how it happened, it certainly brings up a lot of interesting subjects along the way. And so he he raises interesting questions even if he's not ultimately right. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not convinced by his argument in the end. But it's a fascinating book nonetheless. Yeah, like I say, it forces you to, to rethink uh, what language, what written language does to us and, and why uh, the status of the goddess is so diminished uh, in our world to the point where I was telling my son, who's only, he's only six, just barely six, I was telling him about goddesses. And then later that day, we see a representation of a goddess and he refers to it as a lady god. Whoa. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, actually, it's, it's a goddess. It is, uh, it's not just a lady version of this other thing. It is... It's really kind of the primordial thing. You should be calling it a, a, a man goddess. What? Yeah, exactly. That that makes me think like it's so deeply embedded. Now, I'm not calling your son a sexist, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm saying like, you know, how, how come we see a, a goddess and we think that's a lady god instead of seeing a male god and think that's a male goddess? Yeah. I mean, it's he's he's not sexist, but he, he is growing up in a world – that is that is ruled by by uh, by patriarchy, mm-hmm. and you can you can try and balance uh, out a child's upbringing as much as, as possible, but they're still growing up exposed to that larger world. Yeah, and growing up with the legacy of you know hundreds or thousands of years of literature and archetypes, yeah. and you know it, it's there not just in the full works of literature, but it's there in the metaphors we use in everyday speech. They tend to have a kind of patriarchal slant to them, or at least one that associates valued cultural traits or valued activities with men and men's behavior. 
And that goes back through history. Uh, maybe only the first 50 pages or so of Schlein's book are actually the part where he's outlining his hypothesis about evolution and brain lateralization um, and, and how writing affects that. And then most of the rest of the book is just him exploring cultures and time periods throughout history when the status of writing changed or when writing was introduced and what happens to the cultures there. Like one of the examples he talks about is in uh, ancient Mesopotamia with the introduction of cuneiform and professionalized scribes and things like that. When writing was professionalized, you know, he thinks that this leads to the introduction of the idea of written law codes instead of unwritten norms of behavior governing what's acceptable and what's not acceptable to do in society. And so Schlein looks at some of the misogynistic qualities of the earliest written law, law codes and says, hmm, it looks, it looks to him like maybe the introduction of writing itself somehow coincided with a sharp turn towards misogynistic standards of conduct in society. Now, of course, uh, Schlein spends a lot of time with the Greeks because there is a lot of mythological and historical content to discuss there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he points to the comparison to be made between Athens and Sparta as an example of how the spread of the written word pushed uh, 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 the goddess and just female um, power to the periphery of Greek culture. And he says that they're, it's, they're perfect examples to compare because they both spoke the same language. Mm -hmm. They worshiped the same gods. They spoke and, and wrote the same language. But the two big differences, he says, emerge in their treatment of women and their attitudes towards the alphabet. That's interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about Sparta. I, okay. will, I will present to you that this – is Sparta. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, you bring up the example by illusion. Uh, if you were only to be trained on modern pop culture, you mm -hmm. would tend to think of Sparta as very macho. So, yeah. I, so you might be curious, how could how could Sparta be more pro-woman than Athens? Yeah. How could a, a place that is we, – we've come to de define it by beards and six-packs. Yeah. Like what what – what in there is empowering to women? Well, uh, certainly they were a militaristic society with little use for literacy. They produced no playwrights, philosophers, or historians that, that really resonated beyond their own age. Their law, which was uh, formulated by Lysurgus, was not written down. Uh, everyone had to memorize it instead. And Plutarch even reported that there was a Spartan law against committing any law to writing. What? Yeah. Crazy. Uh, so on the other hand, they, of course, glorified uh, deprecation and cruelty. Uh, their government was an oligarchy and, with, with definite fascist uh, leanings. <laughs> but then compare this, uh, this place to Athens. Okay, Athens certainly is a, a fountain of culture, uh, democracy, law. But it's also a place where women were excluded from education, government, and public affairs. The, the Athenian lawgiver Solon denied women the right to buy or sell land, and women were just considered property. A father could dissolve his daughter's marriage. Uh, and uh, even though the muses were considered feminine deities, mm -hmm. uh, the artists were not. The artists were male. So Sparta, on the other hand, quote, educated girls in nearly the same manner as boys. Uh, women wore less restrictive clothing, and they also competed in athletic games. They ruled the household while the men were away at war, and they owned and sold property. In fact, by the 4th century BCE, women owned two-fifths of all Spartan land, according hmm. to Schlein. Here's a quote from Schlein's book. Spartans honored women's life-giving role and considered it equal to that of their warriors. To immortalize his name by having it inscribed on his tombstone, a Spartan man had to die in combat. To win the same honor, a Spartan woman had to perish in childbirth. 
Uh, and uh, another uh, fact uh, that he points out is that uh, Athenians demanded uh, fidelity, virginity, and chastity among their women, but Spartan women were not so restrained. Hmm. So uh, again, he argues that this this is a a great bit of evidence to support his hypothesis because you have you have kind of a wonderful uh, 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 you know A versus B uh, testing situation here with uh, uh, with Athens on one hand and Sparta on the other. Yeah, these two civic societies that at least if he's correct, he's mm-hmm. claiming are, are very similar except by the cultural differences that are derived from one being highly literate in the elites and the other not being so fond of of written down words. Yeah. It's a really interesting idea to compare the two like that and I wonder what a a scholar of ancient Greece would think looking at that. I mean w- would a scholar of ancient Greece say, yes, those those comparisons are valid or or is, or is, is it Schlein, cherry picking? Yeah, yeah, is Schlein cherry picking? You always got to wonder if Schlein's mm-hmm. cherry picking because I get the sense sometimes he may be doing that in support of his argument. But he, at least in the moment while you're reading it, it seems very persuasive. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if, if one were to really get into some of the details of Sparta's brutality, if that would um, if that would go against uh, Schlein's argument here. But, uh, but, but I have not looked at that data yet. Yeah. Uh, hey, if you're a listener out there and you are an ancient Greek historian or a historian of ancient Greece, especially if you're an ancient Greek historian yes, who's a, traveled through time. <laughs> yes, do, uh, do ring us up. We'll get somebody to translate. Uh, yeah, but either way, uh, please get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about that. Is, is that on target? Is it bunk? We'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Um, but yeah, so he talks about many ancient cultures. He talks about ancient Egypt. He talks about Mesopotamia, giving examples as he goes throughout of where he sees the introduction of the written word or parts of the society that favor the written word causing women's uh, position to go into a relative decline and even leading in many cases to these types of violent misogyny that we see in, say, the Code of Hammurabi, the, you know, the written law codes of ancient Mesopotamia. But I think we should look at another interesting example that maybe goes a little bit counter to his theory or or at least see how he deals with it. And that example would be China. So we'll take a look at Schlein's thoughts on ancient China after we come back from this break. All right, we're back. Okay, so we were going to discuss Leonard Schlein's treatment of ancient China. I was curious what he would do with this because part of his idea is that the sequential reading of letters in alphabetic script is what tends to favor this like this male dominant way of thinking in the brain. But of course, Chinese script doesn't exactly work that way, right? That's right. I mean, the Chinese language does not have uh, an alphabet. So it would seem to be a very difficult thing to fit into this theory. So I, I do want to discuss some of the, the key uh, points that he makes in discussing um, uh, Chinese culture and Chinese language. So he points to the evidence of pre-literate female-centric Chinese culture. And indeed, there are some very powerful goddesses in Chinese myths, such as the creatrix goddess uh, uh, Nuwa. But he also makes the following points about about Chinese language. He says there's no tense. Uh, calligraphy is is visual, artistic in ways that Western script doesn't have to be. There's more poetry in it, he says. And, it, and so it would seem to be a right hemisphere written language. And there's actually uh, some cited evidence uh, to back that up. He says, quote, researchers tested a select group of Chinese and English-speaking individuals who had learned to read and write both languages as small children and who later in life had experienced damage to one hemisphere or the other. Right-handed subjects who had damage to their left hemispheres lost the ability to speak either Chinese or English. And although they could not write English, they retained a limited ability to communicate in written Chinese. Those with damage to their right hemispheres 
could still speak Chinese and English, and although they could write English, they had difficulty writing Chinese. However, uh, Schlein stresses that that all of the, this uh, language, even though it, it it might be tipped a little more in the direction of the feminine, it still diminishes the role of the nonverbal component of speech. Chinese characters still must be read in sequence. They and they are, as we discussed in the Chinese typewriter um, episode, uh, abstract in form. There's a certain reductionism involved in consuming it, and so he argues that Chinese writing is still much closer to the alphabet than it is to uh, oral communication, and uh, and it's this proximity that makes it a masculizing influence on Chinese culture. And he also points out that uh, the following. He says that, quote, the tentacles of literacy began to wrap around the minds of the Chinese people in the 6th century BCE. And then this is around the same time that Taoism and Confucianism emerge. Huh. So th- this is fascinating. He points out that Taoism embodies feminine values, uh, no attempt to control others, and promotes mother nature as a guide. Again, this is where we get the symbol of the yin-yang, of the, of, of, of the two opposing forces, feminine and, and, uh, and masculine. Yeah, he portrays Taoism as very, as very feminine friendly. Yeah. On the other hand, he says that Confucianism, this touts masculine values, uh, structures uh, a patriarchal society and, uh, and, and a father culture. And so these two systems of belief, they coexist in relative equilibrium until the Chinese invent the printing press in uh, around uh, 923 CE. Literacy rates soar and soon after, Taoism declines and Q- Confucianism becomes China's dominant belief system. Now, Robert, I know you're very interested in Chinese history. How, how does that square with your understanding of the development and culture and the role of uh, Taoism versus Confucianism? Well, I love the way he's looking at this, uh, this, this sort of tug of war between uh, Taoism and Confucianism. But, it, but then to come back around and, and say, but it's the, uh, it's the written language that is the key, when clearly you have these two uh, different worldviews that are having uh, you know, enormous effect on Chinese culture. Um, I think it's an interesting read, but it, it feels like written language is, is just one of several factors at work here, you know, which I guess is kind of my, um, my response to uh, the, the whole hypothesis. Well, I, I would say that throughout many of his discussions in, in different times in history, I think one problem with his hypothesis is that he overgeneralizes the uh, the pro-female or anti-female characteristics of cultures or ways of thinking. You know, he character- tends to characterize something as either like, you know, this, this way of thinking was very anti-woman mm-hmm. or this way of thinking was very pro-woman when I think in both cases there's usually a little more nuance than he's letting on. I agree. Like he, uh, one example from the Western history is when he gets into the idea of like medieval medieval Catholicism being pro-woman, <laughs> but then the Protestant Reformation and the subsequent Catholic reaction to the Protestant Reformation being anti-woman. I, I think you're more likely to find strong strains of misogyny in both – but examples of women breaking through it in both cases. Right. And then also, of course, realizing that you have varying levels, uh, varying class levels in any given uh, uh, group. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, in medieval Europe, you're going to have some women who are um, 
who are nuns and are a part of the uh, the religious hierarchy. Uh, and then you're going to have some that are that are simply peasants. You're going to have some that are royalty. Likewise, in Chinese history, when you get into the era of foot binding, you are going to have uh, you're going to have members of the upper class who are who are who, who end up uh, being a part of foot binding culture. Then you're going to have women in uh, lower classes who can who are not part of it. Part in, in many part in many uh, instances due to the fact that they do have to work and contribute. Not to get too much into foot binding, that's another fascinating and disturbing topic uh, uh, all on its own. So in Schlein's book, we come back time and time again to the notion that the medium is the message. We go from oral tradition to written records, eventually compounded by the advent of printing press technology, with many key upheavals in society aligned, in his hypothesis, with the, uh, with the technology and the literacy of its people. Masculine powers entrench themselves. The trend continues unabated through uh, the, the world wars of the 20th century, with some impact uh, from the advent of photography. Yeah, the- that's an interesting thing. He, he essentially says that we're retreating back away from some of the patriarchy and that women are gaining more rights to some degree because of photography and the introduction of the importance of the image back into society. Uh, He even at one point talks about how it used to be that if a family was fleeing a burning home, what would they grab? It would be the family Bible. That would be the thing around which all of their family memories were centered. It was a word. The text. Yeah, the printed text. And then after the introduction of photography, it would be the family photo album. Ah, yeah. And then uh, then he argues that uh, post-World War II, you see this television boom. Uh, which uh, which he says really brings the the feminine medium to prominence because this again is the the triumph of uh, the visual over the text. Right, but one thing that's interesting is that Schlein isn't always saying that say the left brain is bad and the right brain is good. Right. That's right. He brings up the example of Adolf Hitler's rise uh, to power in Germany, which he points out was a highly literate nation. Uh, at the time, and uh, and how did Hitler rise to power? Well, through the use of of, the, of radio, and he characterizes this as the the dark side of a sudden shift to right brain culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he says the idea is that Hitler used radio to circumvent this sort of organized uh, sequential left brain thinking of the printed word and go straight into people's brains by talking to them in their ears. Yeah, he says, quote, Hitler's voice buried deep into the depths of the right hemisphere, resurrecting tribal myths and rituals. Now, I wonder what he's going to make a Twitter. Well, he does touch on the Internet age uh, a bit here. He points out that you have the, the invention of personal computer uh, technology, with great, which greatly changes the way people interact. You have graphic icons increasingly replacing text commands. And he says that the Internet and World Wide Web are based on feminine images of nets and webs. I don't know. That feels like kind of a stretch, but uh, but still. Well, well, a, a lot of his associations in the book are kind of stretchy like yeah. that. But then again, we're talking about the realm of, uh, of, of symbols and the power of symbols, and certainly symbols are powerful. Now, beyond that, he doesn't get really get much into the contemporary world. He died in, tw- in 2009, and this book was published in 1998. Uh, there's much, I think, that one might say about the role of, say, hate speech in the primarily uh, written world of Twitter and Reddit. Um, and yet at the same time, meme culture makes use of images as well, often to drive home uh, some rather <laughs> problematic ideas. Yeah. What about, how about podcasts, right? Well, that's true. Right now, everybody that's, listen, that's, that's taking in this podcast, you are listening to our voices. You're not reading it. Um, so, yeah, I feel like the, the world of podcast uh, represents uh, more of the, 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 the feminine uh, uh, energy 
that he's de- he describes in his book. There are quite a few reasons that he seems to think that the modern technological situation is going to be a positive thing for the elimination of the influence of patriarchy. Uh, one of which is that you've got photography and imagery everywhere. Another one of which is that we depend now so much on electricity, which he characterizes as, as always being described in terms of feminine power or feminine type words. Uh, another thing is that the keyboard mm-hmm. has very much changed the way we compose even written texts. Now, the uh, the previous idea of how you'd compose a written text would be that you'd write it out by hand with your dominant hand, which is controlled by the dominant hemisphere of the brain. So if oh. you're a right-handed person, left hemisphere, dominant brain, you'd be writing with that hemisphere. But now we type with both hands. Hmm. And so if you're composing things on a keyboard or on a typewriter – Maybe that would somehow circumvent part of the way that he believes that the left brain has been dominant in alphabetic cultures. He even points to the fact that when typewriters first came into prominence, the people who mainly focused on typing for a living were women and that typing was seen as like – it was kind of men who were trying to get into typing were treated dismissively as like, oh, that's a thing for women to do. That's a great point. Yeah, and not something I would have necessarily thought about going into this despite – I mean, we had the fact that we had a whole episode that uh, that d- discussed the um, uh, the technology of typewriters and its effect on culture. Now, I will say, Shalane was optimistic uh, about where we were headed and, w- and and what our trajectory was slash is as a as a people. Should we consider this a disproof of his hypothesis? <laughs> <laughs> Depends how you look at it. Again, you have to. You have to think about the the various, uh, um, um, you know, uh, peaks and valleys in this various timeline of uh, feminine versus masculine. Yeah, that, uh, it's true. We shouldn't, you know, it's easy to be negative about how things are in the present. You know, we, you have that bias, negativity yeah. bias, and it's like, uh, you know, it, you'll give it some time, give it a few decades, and then you can <laughs> see how things were. But this is this is what he said in his epilogue. He said, "Quote: I am convinced we are entering a new golden age, one in which the right hemispheric values of tolerance, caring." And respect for nature will begin to ameliorate the conditions that have prevailed for the too long period during which the left hemispheric values were dominant. Images of any kind are the balm bringing about this worldwide healing. I will take more time for change to permeate and alter world cultures, but there can be no doubt that the wondrous um, permutations of photography and electromagnetism are transforming the world both physically and psychically. The shift to right hemispheric values through the perception of images can be expected to increase the sum total awareness of beauty. Yeah, one could hope some version of that is true. Yeah. You know, in in the book, he does point out that when you look at the the 20th century, what are two of the most – widespread images? Like what are two pictures that are probably going to show up in any discussion of the 20th century? And one is uh, the, the the picture of Earth as a whole from space. Mm-hmm. And then the other is, uh, is, is the, the detonation of an atomic bomb. Huh. There's a sense of revelation in the photo, in, in the photograph that is um, – that is harder to grasp in the word, I guess, uh, or it's, or at least it's it's harder. It, it takes longer to convey the meaning. When I think about those two images juxtaposed with one another, I think you know they both kind of indicate that line from Auden's poem, September first, nineteen thirty nine, where he just says, "We must love one another or die." I have a feeling we're going to come back to that uh, that kind of proposal at the very end of this episode. Okay, but first, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss some criticisms of Schlein's argument. 
All right, we're back. So I guess at the end here, we should focus on a few general criticisms of Shalane's theory. I mean, we, we've peppered some of our critical thoughts throughout. Uh, I, I don't want to sound too critical because on one hand, I do think he brings up a lot of interesting ideas. And this is actually a book worth reading, even though I think in the end, I'm not persuaded by his main argument. And I think his style of argumentation is very loosey-goosey. And it is important to again drive home that it is it is an argument. It is a hypothesis. This is he has not written the Bible for us here and said right. here here is the absolute word. He's saying this is my hypothesis, and here is how I would support that uh, with our with with the existing body of scientific, uh, historical, cultural, um, archaeological evidence. Yes, I do want to mention briefly one critical review, which was by the science writer Sandra Blakesley. Have you read any, any of her books, Robert? Uh, I don't believe so. I think I might – there's one I've been looking at uh, that, that was about um, – well, she writes a lot about topics related to neuroscience and she co-authored this book about how stage magic can show us certain ways our mind plays tricks on us. Oh, OK. It, it seemed kind of interesting. I think it's called Slights of Mind. But anyway, she wrote a critical review for The New York Times in 1999 and her main criticism is just that the book is uh, – she accuses Shlaine of peddling just-so stories. Now, this is a term that often comes up to describe historical narrative explanations for things that are offered without proof. And one example would be uh, – I, I think this was actually somewhere in the book if I remember right. But anyway, why do men in some cultures wear neckties? Well, let's say the answer is it's because in our evolutionary history, dangling genitalia was a sign of virility in males and it was a sign of good mate quality. So men want to show off some kind of dangling object to set off the same responses so they wear neckties. Now, notice I didn't provide any evidence that that's the reason. It's basically just like I told a plausible story. I told a story and you say, oh, I can see how that might be the case. And these types of explanations are often referred to pejoratively as just-so stories. I just told you a story and, well, that's just how it is. And it has that kind of truthiness to it and so you just buy into it. Yeah. Now, I do think that the accusation of being a just-so story is unfairly leveled sometimes at explanations based in evolutionary anthropology and psychology because, you know, after all, a hypothesis is often just an unproven, plausible explanation that's awaiting some supporting evidence. And so sometimes I think you see attacks on things uh, that are attacks on things, calling them just so stories when really what you should be doing is, well, you know, let's allow people some room to speculate. It's okay to speculate as long as you remember what you're doing. You know, you're not saying like, well, here's the facts. This is how it is. You're saying, hey, what if this were true? Would the, you know, could we find some evidence to support it? Yeah, it's not like, say, a, um, a conspiracy theory where you're saying, uh, where you're exploring that, you're leaning a bit too heavily into the what if. Exactly. And you definitely can lean a little bit too heavily into the what if. And I think maybe Shalane does that in the book. I, I think we're slippery creatures. Often in the heat of our zeal to explain things, we sort of forget that the ideas we're entertaining for the purpose of speculation are just speculation in want of good evidence. We start treating them as if the last thing I speculated, well, we've got that proven now. Now I'm moving on to the next thing. When really you haven't proven anything at any step, you're just offering a lot of plausible possible explanations in a row. Yeah, and uh, run the risk of creating something that is more like a religious framework for understanding the past. Yeah. Uh, not that I'm 
saying that that this is religion or aspiring to be religion, but it, I, sometimes I feel like say that I, I feel that something like the um, the bicameral mind mm-hmm. kind of it satisfies me. It satisfies me in ways that I might look to a religion to satisfy me, in that it can, it gives me a a model upon which I might make sense of the mysteries of the past. Yeah, it, it satisfies you because it's interesting mm-hmm. and because it gives you a way of contemplating possible answers to, to questions you know you're probably never going to have a really solid evidential answer for. Right. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And that's why, it, you know, hypotheses like this and like the bicameral mind are interesting exactly for this reason. They take a a really big fundamental question, a really big fundamental issue, offer some kind of radical solution to it, and then they range over all different types of subject matter and across different disciplines, drawing on different types of evidence to to answer it. And so for some reason, that process is really fun, like to Mm -hmm. engage in that game of solving the puzzle and ranging across all these different disciplines and going to all these different places in history. It feels very good, at least to me it does. It's a very satisfying and emotionally exciting journey. I'm not sure it necessarily – provides the best, strongest explanations for things. Uh, well, yeah, it's like you're looking for a shape. It provides a shape. Mm-hmm. Is it the shape? Well, maybe not. But it, it, it forces you to ask questions. Well, then why does this shape uh, line up with at least certain aspects of reality as we understand it? And that's where, uh, uh, that's where it becomes such a, uh, you know, a fascinating uh, internal exploration. Now, one way in which I would actually compare the bicameral mind favorably to this book is that I think the bicameral – I think that Julian Jaynes is actually a little bit more cautious mm-hmm. than, than Schlein is. I don't, I don't know if you'd agree with that. But I feel like he tends to take things slower and makes fewer broad generalizations. Yeah, yeah. I would say so. And uh, you know, Julian Jaynes also was – he seemed willing to say, is this right? I don't know. This is, but well, this is the model I'm presenting, you know. Yeah. He would uh, – Well, it, and, and Schlein does that in his opening. He yes, basically he says this whole book is a hypothesis. But then if you read sentence to sentence throughout the rest of it, he doesn't, he doesn't continually acknowledge that. Well, but then again, he is making an impassioned argument for it. And, it's true. And, and kind is, of right-brained argument. Yeah. yeah. So you, you kind of – and I guess that's kind of a trap one risks falling into as, as a writer, that you, you become so passionate about the, the theory that you're not stopping every – few paragraphs to remind everybody that's a hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, I should also point out in, in my saying this that I have read more of Julian Jaynes' work like from from different points in his career and mm-hmm. I have only read um, this one work of Schlein's and he has written other books. So I don't know if this is – I don't know to what extent he comes back in subsequent um, – uh, in his subsequent writings and, and sort of revisits any of this. Yeah, I'd be interested to see that. I mean, I, I so I didn't find anything about this theory being picked up uh, in an academic context. I mean, mm-hmm. Schlein was writing for a popular audience. Right. So he makes the argument in a, in a popular kind of way and I think that probably also gives him the freedom to take some license with making kind of broad generalizations when he talks. Like the Greeks were like this and, you know, uh, the right brain is like this and men are like this. In every case, like the the critical reader in me wants to put a big asterisk every time he says something like that and be like, whoa, wait a minute. So you're saying like in what percent of the time is it like that how? Mm-hmm. This also sounds like a great um, framework for a stand-up comedy routine. (laughs) The alphabet versus the goddess uh, as stand-up. I like it.
All right, we're basically out of time here, but I do want to touch on one last topic, one last goddess, and that goddess is Gozer. Well, let's go there. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I am talking about the fictional uh, entity from the, uh, the the film Ghostbusters. Gozer the Gozerian, Gozer the Destructor, Gozer the Traveler, uh, etc. An entity of many names. I have a question. Yes. Is Gozer Inanna? I think she Did they does, say she's supposed to be Sumerian? She is uh, described as being a Sumerian. So she's a she's a type 7 for starters. That's her like her spirit uh, ranking within the Ghostbusters uh, uh, system. Okay. And we're told that it was worshipped as a goddess by the Sumerians around 6,000 BCE. Oh, so that's significantly earlier than any Inanna we know about. Right. So, yeah, the timeline is not going to perfectly line up with what we've been talking about here. Uh, For instance, we we were talking about how Marduk uh, worship began to to rise in uh, 1700 BCE, etc. But... Anyway, I, I do want to ask everyone to consider consider the following in regards to Gozer. So, <laughs> Gozer is a world-destroying traveler. Okay. Yet despite her worship in ancient times, she did not lay waste to the ancient world. Why not? Well, uh, let's, let's remember what we know about how Gozer functions. Okay. So, Gozer's form is chosen by the mortals it encounters. Okay. Our heroes in Ghostbusters imagine it as a uh, imagine it as a seemingly harmless yet masculine corporate logo and it still rampages. Oh, the marshmallow. Yeah. The ancient Sumerians, however, chose the form of a goddess, uh, one attended to by a pair of demigods representing each gender. Uh, both uh, Vins uh, Clortho, the keymaster, and Zul, the gatekeeper. And they seem to share equal footing in their service to Gozer. Oh, man. I'd say, if anything, Zul is more powerful than Vins Clortho. I don't know. Well, it, it's hard. Well, we can't All help Vince it. All Vins Clortho can do is just run around saying, you'll perish in flames. Be, here, you're thinking of the of potential um, complications based on their mortal hosts. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, Sigourney Weaver's character clearly uh, the, the more powerful uh, human host that was chosen. Well, I'm sorry for jumping the gun. I will wait for the <laughs> sign. Okay, so this is my theory. Gozer does not destroy the ancient world because it manifested during a, a time of goddess worship and was bound to a form, bound to a form by a right brain culture rather than a left brain culture. Hmm. So the true way to avoid extinction at the hands of Gozer uh, is to choose a form that emanates from right brain qualities or at least a more balanced mind state. The modern brain, especially the modern male brain, is so dominated then by the left brain, the alphabet in infected uh, patriarchal energy that uh, that even a cartoon marshmallow man uh, can be nothing but a force of conquest and mass slaughter. And perhaps, I'll even go so far as to say, maybe that's Gozer's true purpose, <laughs> to wipe left-brain-dominated species from the cosmos because right-brain-dominated species are going to see it as a goddess. Now, there is actually a great idea for a sci-fi fantasy story. You've got like a, a, a hemispheric lateralization culture mm-hmm. where w- one side brain culture fears being taken over by the other side brain culture and they create a mimetic weapon to destroy it. Yeah, look at that. And we're giving it away for free right here. We're not giving it away. You can't use it. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I, uh, it, inevitably – in talking about uh, gods and goddesses, I can't help but come back to fictional entities in uh, books and uh, in movies. And uh, it's, really, it's really given me a new respect for Gozer. Not that I ever disrespected Gozer, to be clear. 
Anyway, you should tune into our upcoming fictional podcast, The Ancient Brain Bomb. <laughs> I mean, it is telling, too, that Gozer is then defeated in Ghostbusters by a, a pack of men with uh, phallic lightning swords. Yeah. So predictable. And hey, I'm going to say it here. As funny as the movie is, as much as you love the characters, that Vinkman, he, he's not a nice guy. <laughs> he's not. No, he's, he's a patriarchal jerk. Yeah. And so there you have it, a little bit of Ghostbusters to cap off an exploration of uh, the alphabet versus the goddess. Now, I think we should try to come back to some of the more interesting questions raised by this book in the future. I want to come back to the idea of visual perception styles uh, affecting the perception of time, uh, the way that the way that our media really do shape us. I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of research on how uh, on how keyboard driven communication is is changing the what people communicate. Yeah, indeed. Plus, there's so many just little you know, brief moments in the book where he touches on this culture or that or, or for instance, there's a bit where he talks about the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. And I, re- I realize, oh, man, there are a number of kind of cool uh, reads on the Sistine Chapel that have come out uh, over the years. It'd be neat to corral them all into a single podcast. He's got a really interesting and really fun chapter on uh, Dionysus mm-hmm. and the Mynads and, and that kind of stuff in ancient Greece. I actually think it doesn't help his art. It, it, doesn't help his overall argument all that well, uh, but it's just interesting to revisit his treatment of it on its own. And again, if you want to check out uh, the book in its entirety, I will, I'm going to include a link to it uh, on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, as well as a link to the homepage for it, which has a wonderful timeline uh, for the, uh, the hypothesis as well, listing out various historical uh, uh, moments and uh, technological achievements that line up with his hypothesis. And uh, while you're at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, you can check out all the episodes of the podcast. You can check out links to our various social media accounts. And uh, as, as I've been saying, if you want to support this podcast, a great way to do it is to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Big thank you, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, suggest a topic for the future, uh, to share your thoughts with us on anything you think we might be interested in, or just to say hi, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.